Hello, and welcome to the April 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. It's going to be a fairly obvious place for us to start with this podcast. It's the same place you start the April issue, and that's with the monumental oral arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court in the Prop 8 and Windsor-Doma case. And uh, we could begin in a lot of places, Art, but one place I don't want us to begin with, although the court did, is with the issue of standing. We'll, we'll get to that. But well, we better get to that. I do, but I don't want to go there at the start. It may be dispositive. It may be, and we're going to get to that, but... Um, I can't get lost in that right now, and I want to hear about some of the other stuff before we get there. So before we get to the core legal questions, what went on at this hearing, I was wondering if we could get a moment of audible reflection by you, Art, on the significance of these two major cases affecting our community and other communities uh, ending up in the highest court in the United States. Well, the, the significance is that the Supreme Court over the past several decades takes up a major gay rights case about once per decade. And this is it. I mean, this is our shot for now. And I don't think anyone was expecting just a few years ago, other than maybe Ted Olson and David Boys and a few of the people financing their lawsuit, that we would be in the Supreme Court so quickly on the issue of same-sex marriage. Uh, certainly it was not the roadmap that the LGBT litigation groups were thinking of when they started affirmatively bringing these marriage cases. And and the first to be affirmatively filed by an LGBT rights group was the Vermont case, which was filed in the late 90s and decided by the Vermont Supreme Court in December 1999. Uh, and here we are, 13 years later, in the U.S. Supreme Court, both on DOMA and on the right to marry. It's actually rather incredible. And that they devoted two complete argument days to it. Well said. And we're going we're gonna, to, because there's no way not to, we're going to move a little bit back and forth between the Prop 8 and DOMA cases. They are related. They are related, and it, it would be awfully hard to continue to distinguish between the two. And I guess I'll start by asking, with respect to the, the DOMA case, what you made of, um, I guess we'll come back to, to standing and, and that, but it did seem like the justices were awfully interested in the standing question to the preclusion of something else that was very important. Well, it... it it seemed to me that there's a lot of politics going on in the court about how this gets resolved. And the signs, if you can read tea leaves based on questions and answers by the justices, and it's always dangerous because people change their positions. Uh, they conference the Friday after the argument. Uh, they take initial votes. Opinions are assigned. Drafts are circulated. People change their mind. People change sides. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts apparently changed sides last spring in the uh, Affordable Health Care Act case to the astonishment of, of some people. And uh, so you can't really tell based on the argument how it's going to come out. But you can speculate based on the argument how it's going to come out. And at this point, it looks like the four Democratic appointed justices on the court are receptive to the equal protection argument. Uh, they seem to ask questions and make comments that suggest that they get it, that this is sort of basic discrimination, uh, that you wouldn't even need heightened scrutiny to find that there's a problem with Section 3 of DOMA, that Justice Kennedy is just sort of in the middle there trying <laughs> to figure out where he comes down. But he didn't say much on the equal protection stuff. What he was concerned with was federalism. 
and Chief Justice Roberts and his questions seem to be concerned with federalism as well, uh, with the idea that Section 3 of DOMA somehow abridges the right of states to decide who can marry. And uh, Justice Ginsburg's comment on this point uh, about skim milk, which I guess is probably one of the one of the quotes that will live from this oral argument, the idea that uh, comparing marriage with full federal and state rights to marriage with just state rights is like comparing whole milk and skim milk, uh, sort of marriage light, uh, and that uh, that would create an equal protection problem, but it also would create a federalism problem in the sense that it deprives the states of their ultimate right to decide who can marry. And why do we... I, there's been a lot written now about this, um, and, and we spoke a little bit about the idea that we can win the argument and lose the, the war. And lose the well, maybe not the war. Well, we can we can win this battle, but well, if we define the war as winning marriage equality nationwide, that's a, that's the war we're engaged in, and we have individual campaigns in particular states, and we have our federal campaign under the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, and if the court decides this case on federalism grounds without deciding that there's heightened scrutiny or without even going much into an equal protection analysis uh, and picking up on Justice Kennedy's observation during the argument uh, where he says that uh, somehow uh, Section 3 of DOMA is coming close to interfering with the right of the states decide who can marry, uh, then we may have problems in our marriage litigation. Uh, we have cases pending from Nevada and Hawaii that are pending on appeal in the Ninth Circuit under the 14th Amendment, suggesting a constitutional right to marry based on equal protection, and perhaps due process, but I think equal protection has been the main vehicle for the arguments now. And, and what, what, though, takes this out of the realm of loving? I mean, why is it the case? I mean, I realize there's no, there was no DOMA-like statute, but at the core is the question of whether something a state, you know, a restriction right. a state has put on and, a certain and, type of marriage. And, and the state of Virginia argued in Loving versus Virginia that uh, for the federal courts to step in and invalidate Virginia's restrictions on interracial marriage would be violating states' rights. Uh, but the court says states' rights are subject to federal constitutional restrictions. And one restriction is that you don't violate the Equal Protection Clause, and another is you don't violate the So, so uh, you know, how, how do they get out from under that? I mean, if, they're, if we presume... And they I issue think, an inconsistent decision, <laughs> which, well, you know, the Supreme Court has a habit of doing. You, you just beat me to that then, yeah. because, you know, I, I want to afford the, the presumption to some of the justices that I don't find their jurisprudence particularly friendly to us, that at the very least they'll want to be somewhat consistent. Well, that they might be aware of, yeah, the inconsistency that might come from, and various concerns well, over precedent that they've this is, expressed this is, in other cases uh, might actually matter, no? Well, well, this is this is a point that I make to people when talking about the Supreme Court. We tend to talk Don't destroy about, my, my we, we talk about the Supreme Court as if it's a unit. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's a collection of nine individual justices. And the membership changes from time to time. And individual justice change their minds about particular issues from time to time. And it's, you know, what you can get five justices to agree to is the decision of the court. And that can change over time. And we see that. We see the court changing its mind. There's, there's one a famous example of that. Uh, the question whether the federal government could impose 
the Fair Labor Standards Act on the states for purposes of state government employment. Can, can the federal government dictate minimum wage and overtime requirements for state employees? And there's a big federalism argument there because that's imposing significant financial expenses. And the court did it on that. They went one way, then they went another way. A change in membership of the court changes the balance on that, and they ended up reversing a prior decision in a relatively short period of time. Uh, in a slightly longer period of time, we saw Bowers versus Hardwick get reversed 17 years later. Uh, as uh, I think it was uh, Justice Sotomayor pointed out during the oral argument on, uh, I, I guess it was the Prop 8 case, she said, well, it took us 50 years to reverse uh, separate but equal. Right. But eventually we reversed it. The point is that the court changes its mind, but the court doesn't have a mind. Well, what the court has is nine minds at any particular and, time. And this leads right into, I think, one of the more recognizable exchanges from, from the argument, which is Scalia and Olson uh, on Prop 8 going back and forth uh, and uh, with Scalia saying, tell me when it became unconstitutional. Tell right. me when. Yeah. And your answer to that was when, and it was Olson's answer to it, right? Essentially, yeah. when the court, when the when the court, court finally that. says so, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, the principle of equal protection is adopted when the 14th Amendment is adopted in 1868. So theoretically, from that point forward, gay people in the United States had the right to marry. It's just no one had recognized it yet, and no one had even made a claim to it yet. Uh, and, I mean, Olson responded, and they always tell you, you know, in moot court, they tell you never respond to the judge's question with a question. But that's impertinent. It's improper. But Olson did. I mean, when Scalia asked when did it become unconstitutional, he said, well, Your Honor, when did it become unconstitutional uh, to ban interracial marriage? When did it become unconstitutional to segregate the schools? Yeah, and Scalia did not enjoy the no, questions. He said, I asked the questions. Yeah. <laughs> you don't ask me the questions. Uh, but But the point is that Scalia has a fundamental difference with most of the rest of the court, much less the rest of the legal profession, about the issue of the living constitution, the idea that over time we discover new applications for existing principles. And Kennedy made this point very eloquently at the end of his Lawrence versus Texas decision, the Texas sodomy law decision. He says, you know, that we can be blinded to certain truths, and over time we become enlightened, and we realize that laws that seemed reasonable at one time no longer seem reasonable in the light of our current understandings. And so he said, perhaps when they adopted this Texas sodomy law decades ago, it seemed like an appropriate thing. But from what we know today about gay people and who they are and what, how our society has evolved, it no longer seems reasonable. Well, and on Lawrence, I don't want to spend too much time on Scalia yes. because it, it troubles me to give him that much air. But on the Lawrence decision, though, I mean, and, and other people have asked this, and I guess an answer to it is just they don't care, is Scalia's dissent in Lawrence would right. seem to predict if you couple his dissent, which sort of mentioned that once you remove the ability to you know, sort of express your moral disapproval of gay people, be careful because marriage is next, and that was his prediction, and there'll be no way to say no to it. If you combine his prediction and his logic in that case with his supposed respect for some precedent in the court, should well, he really be so opposed to ruling this way? Well, he'll say, I was dissenting mm -hmm. then. And I was saying, if you accept the majority's reasoning in this case, then you have to accept the argument for same-sex marriage. Now, I hope that that's very persuasive to Justice Kennedy, because Justice Kennedy wrote the Lawrence right, opinion. Right. And so Scalia was basically saying to Kennedy, look, Kennedy, if this is the way you're going to go, then you've got to vote for same-sex marriage when that case comes down the pike. And I hope that uh, in this one instance, I hope that Justice Kennedy takes 
Justice Scalia's advice and votes for same-sex marriage. <laughs> All right, so let's move from, from Scalia. And correct me if I characterize this wrong, but I was struck by, you, you're clearly talking about the, the federalism argument in, right. in DOMA, and that was one very significant part of these two cases overall. But in the Prop 8 case, you had the attorney for the proponents of Prop 8. Chuck Cooper. Chuck Cooper. I, I was going to call him Cooper because I didn't know his yeah. first name. Uh, essentially conceding that there was almost nothing other than, at this stage, the procreation argument and the connection between marriage and right. procreation that could possibly justify the exclusion, meaning, like, In there fact, was nothing left on the table. He went even further. He was asked, I think, by Justice Kagan. He was said, he was asked, uh, is there any area outside right. besides of marriage, marriage, besides marriage, in which it would be justified for the government to discriminate based on sexual orientation? And he basically said, well, I have nothing for you on that, Your Honor. <laughs> you know, he had no response to that, although he later tried to rehabilitate himself a little bit on that. But uh, the point is that the argument in the Prop 8 case uh, has been held up to quite a bit of ridicule on the theory that this responsible procreation thing is kind of like, like a crock. But I think people have to understand that they're wielding this argument in various ways. And one of the ways they're wielding the argument on the procreation is they're saying, look, in order to find an equal protection violation, you have to find that similarly situated people are being treated differently for no sufficient justification. All right, they say, let's look at same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples. How do they differ? Musical taste. Well, musical taste. Uh, Some people like musical theater. Some people don't. I I would hesitate to generalize based on sexual orientation with respect to that. But but the point is he's saying saying same-sex and opposite-sex couples are not similarly situated with respect to the ability to procreate through the members of the couple having sex with each other. And that's a difference that the state has a right to take into account in deciding who can marry. And, And he says... If procreation is relevant to marriage, if it's one factor that's relevant to marriage, not the only factor, but if it's one... Well, the don- it was more than yeah. just one. Yes, but yeah. if, if that is a factor that the state can take into account as being a consideration about you know, why we create this institution, why we grant these rights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then these two sets of couples are not similarly situated. And if they're not similarly situated, there's no equal protection argument to be made at all. The government can treat them differently. Now, I think that's ridiculous because it makes marriage sound like all it's about is procreation. And as, as when we were uh, chatting before we started this podcast, you know, take a look at Chief Justice Roberts, well, and I, and I do, who has adopted children. Yeah, and I want to – I think there's a certain amount of – there was a part of me that was wanted to I – I knew the advocates could never bring up the personal lives of the justices right. because that would be extremely offensive to intrude upon the personal lives of people with respect right. to the most intimate and fundamental commitments of life, like who they sh- share their intimate relations with. And the justices would never do that to us, so right. it would be unfair to do that. That's sarcasm. Um, but Well, that didn't come through, Brad. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> this case is all about, in, you know, the, the respect for our intimate relationships and all our right. families, but yet that's off limits. But I was very struck by So this whole exchange led to what I thought was the most depressing part of this thing. There was a lot that was depressing, at least from my perspective. But this exchange about whether older how, – how many older people can have children and whether men can have children when they're 80 and women 55 and all this sort of craziness about – trying to get around the fact that yeah. it remains true that many heterosexual couples either cannot or do not want 
to procreate. Right. And you bring up Justice Roberts as this fascinating exchange, I thought, where Chief Justice Roberts is speculating aloud about maybe it's the procreative aspect of marriage that's so key. And as you point out, and it would be unfair to do so in the court of law, but Justice Roberts' marriage was not based, is not furthering, if, you, if you're if you not going to credit the type right. of procreation that same-sex couples engage in, I don't know how John Roberts is any different. He well, adopted two children, which right. is great, but he didn't procreate in the way they're talking well, about. Well, you see, th- here I think it was Justice Kennedy who really cut through to the core of this when he says, well, look, 40,000 kids yeah. being raised by same-sex couples in California alone. I don't know where he got that figure, maybe from a, a brief, NCLR tends to put figures like that in their amicus briefs. So he, he says, uh, all right, 40,000 kids being raised by same-sex couples. Don't they want their parents to yeah. be able to get He's married? Like, don't their voices mean don't something? Don't their voices something. mean something in this case? And he actually alluded to that the next day in the Doma case as well. He just sort of, in brief passing reference, he said, well, what about the children? And it seems to me that that's an important issue for Justice Kennedy, and it helps to explain why this is not just about procreation. It's about procreation and who you're going to live with and who you're going to share your life with, and it's also about raising children. And surprising to a lot of people, the proportion of same-sex couples who are raising children, both gay men and lesbians, that a lot of same-sex couples are raising children, and those children are being deprived of the benefit of having their parents be married, and the stability that might come that, the benefits, entitlements, and not to mention the message that it sends for their families not to be treated completely equally under the law. I mean, there's an emotional component, a psychological component to this, there are economic components to it. Uh, so it seems to me that that is a factor that's weighing on Justice Kennedy, and that might be helpful to us in getting him to the merits in this case. And and on that front, there was there was some. I, I think Scalia certainly did it. Um, Alito wondered a lot about it. I mean, there was there was two things also on that that front going on. Uh, sort of some skepticism about which way the data, the sociological data, points about uh, children of same sex couples. And also the newness of this phenomenon, well, and we need time to right. test it. Well, this is this is this is sort of bizarre because I remember uh, writing an article back in the 1980s uh, for the, the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Psychotherapy. I think it was. I had been asked to do a paper in connection with a conference that was being put on by the American Psychological Association, and uh, there was a case. I think it was from Pennsylvania involving a custody dispute between a lesbian mother and her ex-husband and the court saying, well, you know, it's this phenomenon of gay people raising children is so new, we can't really rely on the scant studies we have. We have to wait decades. Well, that was in 1985, all right? It's 2013. And we have the American Psychological Association putting in an amicus brief here saying, look, we've reviewed the evidence and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies now. And nobody has found any real harm to children being raised by same-sex couples. They seem to turn out okay in about the same uh, proportion as people being raised by marriage. And, and this was, I thought, uh, Paul Clement did a pretty good job uh, of arguing, sort of kind of brilliant in a way, uh, recasting DOMA as not sort of a anti-gay exclusionary uh-huh. measure, but Concerned it's just a, and, a, and, a, and also a pause button. Yes. It was a gentle press of the pause button to allow us all to have more time to make sure that gay marriage didn't get imposed on all of the rest of the states automatically by one yeah. 
one state doing it and then the federal government having to recognize it. And there wasn't shit. I thought the 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 the, the um, solicitor general. I mean. He makes the point, waiting is not, this goes to your point, waiting is not a neutral act. It imposes real costs on people. Right. And there are echoes of this. I mean, you look at the arguments that were made around the time of Brown v. Board of Ed and the, the whole civil rights era. It was constant. I mean, Martin Luther King spoke very eloquently about yeah. the idea of enough waiting. We've heard the argument. And how long can we wait? Right. You know, and what, who's, how many people out there are going to suffer while we wait? And, and then the last thing, sorry, I may be a little influenced by having reread some of his work, is like, who are some of these people to decide how, how it feels to have to wait, right. why, why mean, this, this gets is, worked out. This is the sense of, of listening to the recording of the argument and, and following along in the transcript and saying, look, they're talking about my life here. Right, right, right. I mean, I have a same-sex partner. You have a same-sex mm-hmm. partner. You're raising a kid. Mm-hmm. We're married, you mm-hmm. know, and they're talking about our lives here as if it's some kind of abstract thing and as if we should wait. I mean, I'm 61. I should wait till I'm in my 80s for the federal government to recognize. Well, and and and, and yeah. Edie Windsor on her point yeah, about she's in her 80s right? well, about what she was waiting for, right. what she's still waiting for. Right. And I think though, I did want to. You already made this point in in last month's publication, but I think it's a it's it's a very good point that you've sort of started to hit on, which is you worried aloud in your writing that this could. Um, sort of devolve into a discussion of abstract legal principles. Right. And that's the standing stuff. And that, and that was very much a standing. Yes. And I thought a little of the federalism stuff was that too, was, you know, there's a real difference between talking about an individual's rights and what it means to their lives versus the impact on the state's ability to carry, right. you know, their independence, so to speak. Right. And I thought I have claimed no expertise in terms of having listened to a lot of arguments, but I thought a lot of the argument the reason why the moments that Kagan or others really brought it, or you talked about Kennedy bringing up the children, the reason why those moments stick out is because they were the exception. Right. Most of the arguments were about, well, you the, wouldn't even know that there was real well, people Well, the involved. point is, in the DOMA case, the court reserved the first 50 minutes for the jurisdictional issues, and then they let it run over, mm-hmm. although they ended up extending the whole argument a little bit. And, and on the Prop 8, each of the people who stood up to argue tried to start by addressing the merits, and each yeah, one yeah. was interrupted by Chief Justice Roberts, who said, well, first, we've got to address the standing yeah, issue. he said, you don't think you're going to get away with that, not addressing that? Said, yeah. yeah. Uh, even Verrilli, he pushed. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of funny, because uh, the Solicitor General, Don Verrilli, had asked for a few minutes of the respondent's time in order to present the position of the Obama administration on same-sex marriage, and the court granted that. And so, and in, in his brief, he didn't even take a position really on standing. He said, we're just in here on the merits. And so then he stands up and he tries to get started on the merits. And Robert says, well, what's your position on standing? <laughs> he says, well, we don't really have a position on standing. Well, he said, well, you know, you really have to have a position on standing. And Senator Burley says, okay, they don't have standing. Let's go on to the merits. Uh, and, and Roberts even tried to engage him on standing a little more. Uh, you know, using up his time. Although, to be fair, the court did extend the time on no, the that's right. as well. I, I want to ask you, sorry to jump in, I want to ask you one question that I haven't prepped you with at all, so maybe you don't have a good answer either. Um, and then I want to get your takeaways before we, we cut short the discussion here, is that um, there was an exchange, it was mainly led by Chief Justice Roberts, particularly in the, in the DOMA case, on the federalism point, and he pressed both the, the Solicitor General and, and counsel for, for Windsor, Roberto Kaplan, on the question of, well, would you have the same concerns if the federal government went in the complete opposite direction, saying, we will provide 
the equivalent of marriage benefits for same-sex couples or anyone else we define right. as a married unit. We're all, we're, regardless where they're living, which state they're living exactly. in. Exactly. And it, it had the feel, especially on the audio, of this is a dangerous question. Because, uh, you know, the, And both the yeah. advocates proceeded very cautiously. What is the answer to that question? Why is that different? What, what, what is the right answer? Well, to the, the question, question is, does the federal government have a right to decide for the whole country who's entitled to marry? Is that no. the question he was Could, asking, though? I think that, that may be one aspect of the question he was asking. I wasn't really sure when I was listening to the, trans, to the uh, recording exactly where he was going with that. Uh, but it seems to me that Roberts and Scalia and Alito are very much committed on, on this sort of federalism thing that we have a federal government of limited powers and that we should preserve the rights of the states to decide policy issues that are state issues. And if you look at Article I of the Constitution, which enumerates the powers of Congress, there's nothing about domestic relations law there. Obviously, Congress needs to get into that issue in terms under the necessary and, and proper clause to do their other stuff, like they, they got to make bankruptcy laws, they got to make laws on immigration and stuff, and so for purposes of those laws, we have to have a definition of family, uh, you know, who should get to file jointly in a bankruptcy case, who should get to be able to sponsor a spouse for citizenship. Right. So Congress does have to get to, into issues of defining family, but Congress doesn't have any general authority in domestic relations law. And uh, But I mean, I thought, the, I thought what, he was, what he was asking was, would that be undercutting? Would it, would it be the undercutting states. the states yeah. to be able to do a permit? And and, and and where he took this in a hypo, uh, the couple that marries in New York and moves to North Carolina, and would the federal government have to continue to rec- respect their marriage when the state where they're living doesn't? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where uh, Robbie Kaplan sort of gave a concession, and I was a little aghast when I first heard it, and then I thought about it a little more, and I decided, well, she's trying to limit any damage in this case. Uh, and she says, what we're concerned about, Your Honor, is the states that recognize. We want the federal government to recognize the marriage and the states right. that recognize the marriage. Uh, and she didn't want to make a broader statement. And, uh, you know, I think, and, and there's been some uh, speculation in the legal press since the argument, that this could create a real mess. That is, if the court strikes down Section 3 of DOMA, but doesn't rule on the merits in the Prop 8 case. We end up having a situation where people have a federal marriage status and a state marriage status, and people are moving around, and some people predict that the result could be rather chaotic, that people have two different statuses at the same time, married and single. But the point is, that's true right now, (laughs) which is why we do have some chaos right now. I mean, I am married for purposes of New York state law and not married for purposes of federal law. And if I go across into Connecticut, I'm still married because that's where I got married. But if I go across the Hudson River to New Jersey, I'm not married, but they'll call me a civil union partner. Mm -hmm. And I've never been involved in a civil union. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really strange. And of course, the federal government doesn't recognize my marriage at all. So... I think we have a chaotic situation now. I think that's really just, well. It would be a different chaotic it, it situation. It might be slightly better to have that kind of chaos. But, but it helps to explain why these cases are interrelated and why what would really make the most sense is a matter of public policy, although I suspect the court's not going to go there, would be to rule on the merits for us in the Prop 8 case and the DOMA case. So we would have universal same-sex marriage in the United States. Hallelujah. <laughs>
you know, <laughs> that's. But you know, in terms of predicting what's going to happen, I think you know there, there's pretty much of a consensus at this point among most observers that what's likely to happen is that the court will find that the proponents of Prop 8 didn't have standing, and the result will be we'll get same-sex marriage in California, although there may have to be some cleaning up litigation in the district court to decide the scope of Judge Walker's order when it's actually implemented. Uh, in terms of DOMA, there's a good chance that Section 3 of DOMA will be stricken, but a lot of it depends on how they go on the standing and jurisdiction, because if they decide that the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction over this case, uh, that means the district court decision stands. Some question whether the Second Circuit's decision stands, but does it mean that just that Edie Windsor wins her tax refund, but anyone else who wants to make a claim has to file a new lawsuit? Wow. You know, we don't know. There are a lot of imponderables. And uh, another imponderable that came up uh, in discussion with one of my colleagues who teaches tax, and um, I'm asking, well, if DOMA is declared unconstitutional this June, anyone who's been married to a same-sex partner since, let's say, in Massachusetts, since 2004, and the partner has died, can they file a claim for Social Security survivor benefits? Can they file a claim for a refund on their estate tax if they paid one? You know, How retroactive would this decision be? And nobody really knows. And we won't know until the court writes the decision because the, the court sometimes says that its decision is perspective only, and sometimes it says it's retroactive, and sometimes it doesn't say. And then it leaves it to the lower courts to puzzle it out into particular cases. So we could have a plethora of wow. lawsuits just on the issue of retroactivity, depending, once again, how the decision is written. And if it's decided on jurisdictional grounds, we could have a big question mark as to how broad the resulting holding is in terms of uh, binding the federal government. So All right. lots of question marks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, watch out for the July podcast, because <laughs> after these opinions come out in June, we're going to have to dissect them and figure out where they leave it. Well said. We're going to leave it there. We're going to take a short break and... Ironically, we're going to be discussing a Fourth Circuit ruling concerning the impact of the ruling in Lawrence v. Texas. Believe it or not, we're still talking about that uh, concerning Virginia's anti-sodomy statute. Stay with us. All right, we are back discussing the case of McDonald v. Moose. Uh, This is a case out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. And there the court determined that Lawrence v. Texas, uh, the monumental Supreme Court decision from 2003, renders Virginia's continuing anti-sodomy statute facially unconstitutional under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. As our listeners, no doubt, will recall Lawrence. In Lawrence, the court struck down a sodomy statute that applied only to so-called homosexual sodomy as opposed to being applying across the board. Now, you're going to help me a little bit with the facts here. So a man is arrested for criminal solicitation of a minor. And as part of that, for criminal solicitation, you need an underlying predicate felony to support that, that charge, right? So what is the, the predicate here? It's his effort to commit sodomy, specifically to um, his effort to solicit oral sex from a minor, which is a crime under the Virginia sodomy statute, which is called the Crimes Against Nature statute, right. which I know many sodomy statutes are called, but well, I still... the older ones. The older ones. It's still a sort of pretty jarring to hear that right. language. That's, that's like going back to Blackstone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but in this case, I mean, just to, to flesh it out a little bit, uh, he was 47 at the time. She was 17. And they were in a parked car in a... Uh, a 
retail store parking lot, and he solicited her for oral sex, and she said no. So the act wasn't even uh, completed. Right. And and at a later point, uh, and it's sort of strange. You know, you read the facts in these cases, and they're very strange. He calls the cops on her several weeks ago, and he gives his version of the story that she tried to force him into right to, to, to preempt her potential yes. call to the police. And and, uh, and then and it says the police saw through the ruse. Yes, and the and ruse. So, <laughs> and so he got uh, he got prosecuted and uh, felony. You know, and uh, serious felony there. Uh, although they reduced the actual uh, length of the jail term because it didn't actually complete uh, the offense of sodomy, but it was basically a solicitation case. So, 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 then so his, he he defends. He says, "Look, under Lawrence versus Texas, the Virginia sodomy law is unconstitutional." And we've seen, Art, by the way, we've I don't think we've talked about them in the podcast, but you've certainly written about them in law notes. We've seen other cases of folks facing these sorts of charges, right, well, the trying problem, to use Lawrence right. to get out from underneath well, that. The, the problem is, or one problem is, and certainly the problem that the Fourth Circuit uh, panel, a majority of them, this is a two-to-one decision, a problem that the panel saw here is that Virginia, like quite a few of the other states that had sodomy laws on the books at the time that Lawrence was decided, they haven't gone back and repealed them or amended them or cut them down to just apply to uh, conduct that might not be constitutionally protected. They've just left them there. And it's been up to the courts in the states, the law enforcement people, the police, the prosecutors, the courts, to know where the line is drawn and which conduct can still be prosecuted and which can't in light of law. Do you have a theory as to why a legislature wouldn't be in a rush to amend a sodomy statute? Well, because most state legislators don't want to vote in favor of sodomy. <laughs> you know, they figure it's going to get them in trouble with the electorate, you know, or with their party, so and they're going to get a primary challenge, and, and they're going to say, he voted for sodomy. So we know? have these these laws so in the other contexts just hanging around on the you books. Know, interesting uh, little historical factoid. You in, always have little interesting in 1980, historical factoids. In 1980, the New York Court of Appeals held New York's sodomy law unconstitutional. Don't tell me it's still on the All books. Right, tell me when it was repealed. 2002. Mm. It was on the books for 22 years. And in fact, there was a continuing problem. The police officers continued to enforce it. And we still have that problem with the, the uh, solicitation law in New York. Uh, there's a law that until very recently was on the books that prohibited loitering for the purposes of soliciting deviant sexual intercourse. Right, the Court of Appeals declared that unconstitutional a few years after their sodomy case back in the 1980s wasn't taken off the books until just a few years ago. And in the interim, police officers kept arresting people under them to the point where a federal judge held the city of New York in contempt for continuing to arrest people under this statute. And they were fi- they were imposing a fine. It would go into effect automatically every time they arrested someone. And so finally, the city, you know, and, and the state, because there, there were instances of this upstate as well, the legislature finally got on the stick and they revised the criminal statute. So we have this in Virginia. There have been proposals in the Virginia legislature to go back and reform their sodomy law, cut it down, just apply it to minors or acts in public or non-consensual, you know, because the Supreme Court, as as uh, everyone keeps saying, you know, they keep looking at that last paragraph or next to last paragraph in Justice Kennedy's opinion, and he says the present case does not involve minors, it does not involve persons who might be injured or coerced or, or situated in relationships where consent might not easily be refused doesn't involve commercial sex, public conduct. He says, this is all the stuff that isn't involved in this case. This case involves two male adults in private consensual, consensual sex. sex. That's what this case involved. Uh, and so later courts have said, therefore, 
Lawrence doesn't invalidate our sodomy law. It just cuts down its enforceability. Now, in this case, the Fourth Circuit says, no way. They said, there's another part of Lawrence that you're overlooking. And that's the part where they said Bowers versus Hardwick was wrong when it was decided, should not have been decided the way it was, and is hereby overruled. So they said, what was at stake in Bowers versus Hardwick? The Georgia sodomy law. And guess what? The Georgia sodomy law is just like the Virginia sodomy law. In terms of not drawing a distinction between gays, same-sex couples. No distinctions at all. All acts of oral or anal sex are illegal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's public or private, consensual or non-consensual, minors, same-sex, opposite sex, doesn't matter. So uh, if the Georgia sodomy law should have been declared unconstitutional in 1986, says the Fourth Circuit majority here, that must mean that the Virginia sodomy law is also facially unconstitutional. And if it's facially unconstitutional, it can't serve as a predicate. I mean, we may acknowledge that the state of Virginia could make it a crime for a 47-year-old man to solicit a 17-year-old woman to have oral sex, but they haven't done it. What they've done is they've had a broad across-the-board ban on oral sex, and the Supreme Court has said in Lawrence that that's unconstitutional. Therefore, says the majority here, grant the habeas corpus petition. I mean, this is a case McDonald's convicted. He appeals it through the state court system. Uh, is rejected at all levels. Then he files a petition for habeas corpus in the federal court. The standard under federal law for granting a petition of habeas corpus, there are only two grounds, basically, if, if the state court has, in fact, decided the constitutional question, which they did. McDonald raised it all up and down the line, and they all rejected it. Uh, one ground is that the state court's decision is clearly wrong under federal constitutional law as declared by the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That's one ground. The other ground is that the the uh, record before the court factually just doesn't support the conviction. And uh, the second ground isn't relevant here. So the majority says, if you put together Lawrence v. Texas, Bowers v. Hardwick, and the fact that Bowers was overruled in Lawrence, this decision clearly violates federal law, established federal law. Under established federal law, an across-the-board sodomy statute that doesn't distinguish between consensual, non-consensual, minors, prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. One that uh, just across-the-board ban on oral sex, that violates the Constitution. The dissenter says, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. The Supreme Court was not all that clear. Lower courts have been divided about what Lawrence means. There isn't total unanimity of view as to the scope of that decision. Furthermore, he says, when you look at that paragraph, Justice Kennedy, uh, the present case does not involve minors, etc., etc. He says, that makes it sound like Lawrence was an as-applied ruling, not a facial unconstitutional ruling. Because he was wondering aloud about circumstances in which... Because the Texas homosexual conduct law did not distinguish on grounds of one party being a minor, or on grounds of public versus private, or consensual or non-consensual. It just banned gay sex. Uh, So... On one hand, it's it's facially unconstitutional in banning all gay sex, but on the other hand, the court made very clear that they weren't ruling on a case that presented all of those other complications. They were ruling on a case that involved two adult men in a private apartment engaging in consensual activity. Right. I mean, but if you look at the underpinning of, uh, you know, in the same paragraph yeah. about 
why Kennedy gets the majority yeah. where he wants to. He's talking yeah. about demeaning the private lives, you know, the right. lives of... Presumably the same concern would not present itself for right. folks who are in the process of well, soliciting yeah. a minor. So, But the point is the dissenter says, look, under the federal habeas statute, I don't think that Mr. McDonald has met his burden of showing that this clearly violates established federal right. law as declared by the Supreme Court, that the majority had to do a little interpreting and fudging, and, you know, it's, it's not totally clear to me that he's met the burden. And so it's a two-to-one decision, and the Attorney General of Virginia, Ken Cuccinelli... Never heard of that guy. Never heard of... He didn't do anything on health care or anything yeah, he like that, did he? Yeah, he, he challenged the Affordable Care Act. Well, Mr. Cuccinelli... Wants, uh, wait for it. What do you think he's doing right now? Mr. Cuccinelli is running for governor. Yes, and then what is he going to do with this? he's running in a Republican primary. And what is he doing with this case, then? What does this possibly have to what do with politics? Doing? What does this have to do with it? He's filed a petition with the Fourth Circuit for on bank rehearing. Because he wants to defend... The sodomy Well, now, you know, the headlines oversimplify. What Mr. Yeah. Cuccinelli has said is, we believe the state has a right to prosecute a 47-year-old man for soliciting. Okay, and I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Right, and but the issue is, the majority here says, well, if they want to do that, they should rewrite their statutes right. to make it clear. And that it's not appropriate for a court to rewrite the statute. Because there's no fair warning to people about what's prohibited and what's not prohibited when you just have this general facially invalid statute. So that to sum up where we started the conversation, unlikely we're going to see a legislature rushing to amend it, but we may see an attorney general interested in higher office rushing to defend it, right? Yeah, and, and we, we look at the Fourth Circuit. If we go on bank in the Fourth Circuit, there are 15 active judges in the Fourth Circuit. And just out of curiosity... I looked it up. <laughs> These are the types of and things you do. <laughs> six of those 14 were appointed by President Obama. Four of them were appointed by President Clinton. The Fourth Circuit now has probably one of the largest Democratic majorities of any circuit because of all these vacancies they had during the first term of President Obama. And so I got a feeling maybe the Fourth Circuit will affirm this panel. I don't know. But then the dissenter was appointed by President Obama. So who knows? Interesting. All right. You can never be too sure with the prediction. So um, we're going to take a short break. We're going to do our of note segment. And this is going to be an of note segment concerned with Facebook and what you shouldn't do there. Right. And maybe the lesson is don't do on Facebook what you wouldn't do other places. Is that fair? Uh, that may be one way to characterize it. I mean, this. <laughs> all right. Stay with us. Okay, we are back to close the podcast with our of note segment. Before we do, Art, I'm gonna I'm gonna implore you to keep it PG rated as you PG describe rated. these yeah, the facts of this Facebook centered case. Okay, this is this is the saga of Timothy Ryan O'Leary. <laughs> uh, Timothy Ryan O'Leary was very very upset that his lesbian cousin and his lesbian cousin's girlfriend were not leading the lifestyle of which he approved. Let me let me repeat. So, he was very, very, very upset. upset. <laughs> and so he posted on his Facebook page. Which is where you go when you're upset. Yes, he he posted in language that we cannot say on the air. But it was bad. It was really it was like threatening. It was it awful. Was like threatening violence. It used it was, F word. It used, word. It it used was, like threats like it's yeah. not funny actually what he said. Yeah, but it's, it's it's really nasty. It's right. terrible actually. So one of his Facebook friends was his cousin Michael. <laughs> and this is a lesson about Facebook yes, friends as well. Nice. They they All may right. not really be so, your friends. So his cousin Michael O'Leary sees this and becomes a bit alarmed that, you know, cousin Tim is threatening uh and we're not told the name of the lesbian cousin and that's not really relevant. But he says, you know, I better tell her father. So he calls his uncle and he says, you know what? You know what Tim threatened to do to your daughter? And the uncle, of course, warns the daughter and it gets to the police. And all of a sudden, 
he is prosecuted under a Florida statute which makes it a felony, a very serious crime, to threaten somebody and to send somebody a threat in writing or to send it to their relative. Mm. You know, it's, it, you have to look at the exact wording here. So he's defending, and his defense is, I just posted on my Facebook That's page. That's not a writing. I didn't send it to her. I didn't yeah. send it to anybody. It was meant to be private. So I just posted on my Facebook page. <laughs> well, he didn't say it was meant to be private, but he said, I just posted on my Facebook page. I didn't send it to anybody. Yeah. And the court said, well, just a minute. Did when, he send it to Facebook? He said, when you post it on the Facebook page, you are, in effect, sending it to all your friends who have access to your Facebook page. And since your friends included a relative of the person you were threatening, the crime has been accomplished. And so, you know, the amazing thing is this guy is getting 10 years in prison for a posting on his Facebook page. Wow. So, you know, cautionary note to everybody. Well, and and to to be honest, I mean, look, if he sent it by mail and it was – let's just say leaving aside whether you agree with the harshness of this, you know, how many years – if he sent it by mail and arriving in a mailbox, people would take it fairly seriously. And in an age yeah. where lots of people communicate over Facebook, how weird is it right. to, to, to receive a threat and consider it serious, but when you receive it on Facebook? Right. And, and the point is that this isn't an isolated decision. I understand there are decisions from other states. This came to my attention because uh, he's upset lo- because she's a lesbian. So, you know, it came up in my search because of the search terms I use when I, I look for cases online. But... Uh, Similar threats posted on Facebook and in other social media have been held to uh, violate these criminal statutes about making direct threats. And I'll close with I actually give the court some credit in the sense of recognizing the modern sort of adaptation of the traditional writing is most of us, you know, I'm sure text messaging would be the same thing. Writing is a writing. Let's leave with that. Writing is writing. Writing is writing. From a writer. Yes, and a rose is a rose on that note. Exactly. But that brings us back to the whole full circle of a uh, rose by any other name. I mean, we got into that a little bit in Prop 8 and, and Doma with Roberts's, uh, yeah. it's just the label. Yeah. It's just the label. What is marriage? What, what is, is marriage? It's like, well, let, let, let's, let's let label you something else. Okay. All right. Enough about that. That's all the time we have today. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can always be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. And please give us a mo- take a moment to give us some stars if you like this podcast. You can also follow the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York on Twitter at legal.org or find us on Facebook. There. We end, we end with Facebook. Fine. Fine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>